0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak.
1: And I'm Claire Wiley.
0: Although reducing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases is essential if we want to mitigate a warming atmosphere, we also need to adapt our lives and infrastructure to address not only the environmental damage we have already caused, but the increasing damage that is on the way.
1: Rob Verchick, one of the nation's leading scholars in disaster and climate change law and a former EPA official in the Obama administration, discusses this in his latest book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. In it, Burchick examines how we can manage the risks that we can no longer avoid while laying out our options as we face a growing climate crisis.
0: That's in the first part of the show. Then, the Department of Agriculture is proposing a nationwide plan focused on protecting federal old-growth forests. The proposal would amend all land management plans governing the national forest system.
1: Garrett Rose from the National Resources Defense Council will join us to discuss the details of the plan and how it will be implemented and who supports and opposes it.
0: All that and some news regarding National Radon Awareness Month and... How the Summit County Department of Health has developed a map showing radon detected in homes throughout the county and how you can test for radon in your own home. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us.
2: Hi, this is Steve Roney, owner of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Utah Properties. I'm a proud resident of Park City and a loyal supporter of KPCW and all it does for our community. Our agents in Summit and Wasatch counties can be reached at any of our 30 offices or at our website, bhsutah.com.
0: Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the first part of the show is Rob Verchik. He is um, the author of the new book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. He's also a leading climate uh, law scholar who designed and implemented climate resilience policies in the Obama administration, among other things. Uh, uh, Professor Virchik, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this green earth. Oh, are you there?
1: Hi, Rob. Hello. Uh, there you are.
0: are you, can you hear can us, you Rob? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you for joining us this morning. is he there okay rob again
2: we're uh rob oh you're there
1: hi rob can you hear us
2: i can and uh can you hear me
1: we can now yes
2: yes okay thank you for joining us this
0: morning on this green earth rob i thought we'd take the first uh a few minutes for uh, get a little biographical sketch on yourself. How did you get into say the environmental field and kind of the arc of your career to this point?
2: Well, I have been in the environmental field for more than 30 years, uh, teaching environmental law at uh, law school. Weather and I know a lot about Utah because we used to go there quite a bit. and,
1: uh, we're having a little bit of trouble with your connection, Rob,
2: let me see what I can do.
1: All right. We're going to cut to commercial break and, uh, we will check this out. Thank you so much for joining us for this green earth. Yeah. We will be right back.
0: Welcome back to this green earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. We're uh, trying to get our, second, our first guest on. Uh, in the meantime, I've got a little news item to share. Well, why not? Uh, this is out of the New York Times. It says, the numbers are in, and scientists can now confirm what month after month of extraordinary heat worldwide began signaling long ago that last year was Earth's warmest by far in a century and a half. Global temperatures started blowing past records mid-year and didn't stop. First June was the planet's warmest June on record, then July was the warmest July, and so on, and all the way through December, and shall I pause there,
1: Claire? Well, finish your thought, Chris, and then we'll have Rob come back on, he's on the line.
0: I'll I'll continue, Savinia. but averaged across last year, temperatures worldwide were 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit higher than they were in the second half of the 19th century, the European Union Climate Monitor announced on Tuesday. That is warmer by a sizable margin than 2016, the previous hottest year. And also bear in mind that roughly the 10 warmest years on record uh, have all occurred within the last 10 to 12 years. So. Uh, we are definitely experiencing warming. There's a number of reasons why. Uh, maybe we can get into that another time because I think- We, we do have, our, have our
1: guest, yes. Rob is back.
0: Rob, are you there? I'm back. Oh.
2: Thanks so much
0: for having back me. Back
1: and better than ever. Thank better, you, Rob.
0: Much better connection. So let's, uh, let's go back. Give us a, a little uh, quick sketch on, on your bio
2: sure well i have been a law professor teaching in the environmental area for over 30 years um i grew up in southern nevada in las vegas so i know utah pretty well yeah. and um i have to say i have uh, you know been interested in climate change for a long time but i am now based at loyola university new orleans and i have been here for over 20 years and i went through along with my family hurricane katrina mm. and all of the recovery after that and after that happened I realized I was going to devote the rest, really, the rest of my career in studying uh, climate change, disasters, and how we can all be more resilient as a result. For all the way from the the Gulf Coast uh, to the Mountain West uh, uh, and and to uh, the, the Pacific and the Atlantic coasts of the United States.
0: And and uh, uh, as part of your teaching, you teach a class called Environment and Infrastructure. And yes. Uh, Boy, I'd love to take that class. Uh, I wonder if it's online, but maybe we'll talk another time (laughs) because that's that's really what everything is about, and that's what your book is about, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, basically. Um, But in that class, you say in the first day of class, you play a little game with your students called Escape from Climate Change, where they kind of call out uh, cities or states as a way of maybe, like, where can I go to avoid the impacts of a warming world, and then you give them what, <laughs> the, 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 the uh, discouraging or the news that, well, not so much of an escape, right?
2: Well here's the thing, yeah, so when I'm teaching in New Orleans, everybody understands that New Orleans is, is a wonderful place with lots of wonderful resources, but it's, in fact, it's a lot of those resources, the, the Delta and so on, that, that create some of the risk that we have. And so I say, okay, well, where else would you go, right? And yeah. there are always some folks who say, well, you know, actually they say, let's go to Salt Lake City oh. sometimes. And, uh, and you know, when we talk about air pollution uh, and we talk about wildfire smoke. Uh, and, drought. Seen, and, and drought. And drought. And oh, drought. Yeah. And the Great Salt Lake, yes, um, you know a beautiful, a, a beautiful natural feature that is, as you know, that's, that's drying and, and causing maybe some toxicity in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you could go to South Dakota and you would have problems with uh, smoke and fire. New York City has problems with smoke and fire, and of course, uh, flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there really isn't, I mean, you know, there are places that are more or less risky, but um, you're not going to escape climate change. What you have to do is, is reduce the carbon pollution, uh, which is causing it. Uh, and in the meantime, to buy time, you have to be prepared for the climate impacts that we're not going to be able to avoid. And we can do that.
1: And you speak of this in your book, and your background has led you to writing Octopus in the Parking Garage. And I think first, let's talk about the title. So where did this derive from?
2: So it's a, it's a true story. There there really was an octopus in the parking garage. Um, and it was found in Miami. Um, there's a, uh, a a wonderful um, uh, building, a uh, residential building, uh, Uh, facility apartments and condos that's on Biscayne Bay in Miami and a few years back in 2016 there was a gentleman uh, named Richard Conlon who lived there and he was going into his uh, parking structure uh, which was an elevated parking structure right on the bay and he had to slosh through a lot of water to get to his car and he found a giant Mm. octopus just sort of flopping around like the size of a you know twice the size of a pizza and um they got the octopus out. He you know he, he put it on Facebook and there were lots of pictures and so on. Uh, but it was a climate change story. The story really is that there there's a, a drain pipe that goes down to Biscayne Bay from that uh, garage um, and it's meant to carry water down to the to the bay. Um, but because of sea level rise and because of some quirky tides, um, all of the water reversed and pushed everything into the parking garage instead. And when I first saw that story, I said, Um, You know, if we can't keep uh, sea life out of out of garages, what what else can't we do? Mm -hmm. And I I wrote a a piece for the Miami Herald about that, actually. And then it eventually turned into a book uh, where because there are all kinds of strange things happening around the country, including the drying of the Great Salt Lake um, that you might not ever have imagined. um, But um, but we have to get our we, we have to confront it and we have to fix it uh, or at least accommodate it. And that's what this book is about.
0: Well, the book is broken into basically two parts. Part one, understanding resilience. Part two, doing resilience. So let's, let's go to part one. Let's get a, a definition of resilience and what resilience might look like and may, maybe what it doesn't look like.
2: That's a really good question. So, so resilience is about the way I define it and the way that uh, policymakers who are looking at this idea. Um, it, it's its bouncing back for sure, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you've been inundated with a storm or, or, or something like that, it's coming back as a society where you're not overwhelmed but the most important part about this is it's coming back in an improved way so that so that a community maybe it's your family maybe it's a, a state or a city government it, it's better able to um to endure to absorb these impacts going forward one of the things that's really important about that is obviously economic resilience but mm-hmm. also social resilience mm-hmm. because you know people uh, we, we know this already uh that the people most uh influenced most affected and damaged by climate change in the u s are uh are disadvantaged communities mar- marginalized populations whether you know it's people who are very rural and, and live far away from services or or whether it's uh, uh black and brown residents in in urban areas and 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 so on and um, so we have to attend. To those sorts of things now you ask well what is a kind of resilience that would be um not resilient right and mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. we see this too in, in in florida just to pick an example on, in florida again um they are installing a lot of pumps to pump out water mm-hmm. uh, that floods the cities even on sunny days and those pumps are run by electricity of course and uh, the more electricity that you generate Uh, if it's coming from fossil fuels is creating more carbon pollution which is creating more global warming which is creating more flooding and so it's a circle so we have to make sure that we don't pick uh, ways of adapting that um, that in fact you know contribute to the problem Mm.
1: now we certainly want to get into more specific examples of your book but we know that scientists had started ringing the bells about climate change quite a long time ago but your book takes us quite a few steps back from there. Uh, in the very beginning, can you tell us about the part in which you pull us all the way back a millions of years and and why it was important for you to do so in this book to set the stage?
2: Well, it, yes, it's true. So the second chapter of the book, I go way back, you know, three million years uh, back to uh, pre-humans. And, and I wanted to make the following point. I wanted to make the point um, that the climate, in fact, has always been changing and, and, and actual you know, skeptics of the science make this point a lot. It's true. Uh, the climate has always been changing and has gotten hotter and colder and so on. What we need to understand is that it has never changed this quickly mm-hmm. in the history of of, uh, of human beings, you know, in millions of years, it's not it's not changed this quickly. My point about looking back, and I go back to Lucy and to other prehumans that people, you know, might have read about, is that the whole story of human evolution is about human beings um, and the species evolving uh, to accommodate different kinds of climate. Um, that's you know that that's cooking, that's fire. That's the ability to migrate. It's language and social skills because on our own, human beings are not very good at surviving. They have to survive in groups, and they have to do it in a communal and cooperative way. Uh, my point about this is that we actually inherited those big brains that, the, that early humans uh, evolved with. And our big brains caused this problem in that you know we invented the burning of fossil fuel, Um, but our big brains are capable of cooperating and of learning new ways to do things so that we can adapt to this to this new different kind of climate change that no human being has ever seen before.
0: So, we we have this challenge uh, you're saying, but. We've, we've had it for millions of years or as long as we've been around, it's how we've survived. We adapt and we develop resilience and and so does nature in many ways. You know, so does that, you know, the, the challenge I guess you're saying is that it's the rate of change that's going on is such that uh, we and and more importantly nature may not be able to adapt or build resilience quick enough. That That octopus has been around for millions of years too, but I don't know if it's smart enough to adapt to you know finding itself in, in a garage so so that's the challenge
2: adapting yeah that's right and, yeah yeah and it's a cultural evolution rather than a physical one we're not going yeah. to adapt our bodies anytime soon for warmer weather or for, or for being underwater uh but what we can do is adapt culturally
0: mm.
1: And in the book, you provide these thorough examples of different places and ecosystems and how they are dealing with climate challenges. Can you walk us through an example from the book of how you lay out the challenges facing a particular area and the opportunities and hope that they have as well? And, and I know you brought in um, some stories about indigenous people and we of course here in Utah uh, can understand and respect that they have a lot to say about moving forward.
2: Yes, I think so. A a great example might be wildfires, right, which Mm -hmm. are have been attacking the Western United States for for, for a long time. And of course, I grew up in Nevada and we're all aware of that threat. They've gotten uh, I have friends who are firefighters and I write about uh, a smoke jumper in my in my book who. uh, it was uh, instrumental in the Labor Day fires and so on, literally jumping out of planes and, and going, uh, you know, landing and then confronting these fires and trying to stop the burns. And uh, fire, the, the wildfires are, the scope that we've seen, the scale that we've seen, are just so much more enormous than they were even 20 years ago when this firefighter I interviewed was, was still a kid. And, um, and so you might say, okay, so how do we adapt to something like that? Well, one of the things that's going on is that we're not managing our forests as, as well as we should, and um, and part of that is we're allowing still some very large growth trees, which which uh, um, are have more defenses against fire, in favor of younger trees, which are a little bit like matchsticks standing standing around in the in the forest. So one is we could manage our forests better. Another thing that is very true in Nevada and Utah and in in Colorado and elsewhere is we really have to get our hands on land use uh, in terms of residential areas. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason one the biggest reason people live in areas we call the WUI, right? The wild uh, land urban interface. Mm -hmm. The reason people are living out there um, is because uh, it, housing is too expensive in safer, more urban areas. You know, we, we have this idea that there's all rich people out in in, in big, uh, uh, you know, in big lodges, and there is some of that. But you know, in California and elsewhere, people have been moved out of San Francisco and those areas, and then they're going into Santa Rosa, which is really fire territory. Right. And so, you know, what I say is, is um, you know, adapting to climate change. Some of it is what you might think of, forest management. Another part of it is land use management in cities, so that people can stay in safe places. Right now, our U.S. Forest Service spends half of its entire budget on putting out fires. Um, That's money that's not going toward forest management. It's mm-hmm. not going toward hiking and hunting and fishing and so on. It's not going toward all the other ways that we use forests. Um, and and we, have to, we have to come to grips with that because there are a lot of lives at stake and obviously a lot of money at stake too.
0: We're speaking with Rob Virchik. He is a professor of law, and uh, environmental law at Loyola, Loyola University in New Orleans, he is a senior fellow in disaster resilience at Tulane University and serves as president of the Center for Progressive Reform. And he's the author of the new book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, uh, a call for climate resilience. So um, adding on to what you were saying there, you know about how climate change is, is getting people, one part of adaptation is where resilience is maybe, maybe moving. And that's kind of like the, the biggest challenge that, that many of us face culturally. And I, let's let's look at Monroe County in Florida, southern, you know, Southeast Florida. I I worked as an environmental engineer for a number of years down in Southeast Florida, working on the Everglades uh, projects. And Monroe County, you know, the Keys, Florida Keys, they're slowly not sinking, but they're slowly getting inundated with, like you say, sunny day floods, and not just king tide floods anymore. It's just literally, you know, any full moon flood is going to flood roads and stuff. Uh, is there a point, maybe an inflection point, Rob, where, where county or municipalities say, we can't keep raising this road. We can't keep installing larger stormwater collection systems and pumps. You, w- we can't service this key or this island anymore. Is that occurring? Uh, do, and do we see that happening more and more as we look ahead?
2: Well, first, it is occurring and yeah. we, and we are and we are seeing that. And uh, uh, you know I, I did some research a little early. I mentioned in the book um, there are something like 12 communities in the United States that are actively planning on relocating in total mm. uh, there are, and every single one of them is an indigenous community. Mm. Is, is, a, is, a, is a native community, um, all on the coast. One of them is in Louisiana on an island that's sinking, and and uh, some are in Washington State, and some are, uh, uh, many of them are up in Alaska. Uh, so, so this points out, you know that that um, that vulnerability part that I was talking about. Right. Now, in Louisiana, in southern Louisiana, we are we've lost two thousand square miles of our wetlands coast since the Industrial Revolution. Um, and uh, we have a plan. The state has a plan. of They've already identified communities and have said these communities are going to have to figure out a way of relocating or people are, are, are going to have to, to move. Um, we estimate, the federal government estimates, that 12 million people in the next 50 years will be moving from coasts on account of climate change. Um, And so we need, uh, obviously, a lot of planning in that area and help from the federal government and state governments uh, need to be thinking about this. What no one is thinking about, I don't very few people are thinking about, is where all of those people are going to go. Mm-hmm. And we have very good demographic data that shows that when people move from, let's say Los Angeles, they tend to go to places like Salt Lake City in Las sure. Vegas. Sure. And when people move from Miami, they go to Orlando. And when people move from New Orleans, they go to Houston or they go to Baton Rouge and and so I'm here to tell you a lot of these uh, receding cities are not in conversations with the cities that are going to be sending people and uh, and this is a kind of planning that has to start now because it is n- no one's going to stop it uh, it's it's going to be happening and people need to, to sort of pack that into their into their land use planning programs
0: it's, it's interesting uh, that what, 20, 25 years ago when we first started when scientists sort of, sort of, you know tried to draw our attention more and more to climate change and its potential impacts. Resilience was, was not a popular term, and I think you write about that in the book, your experience yeah. when you gave, we gave talks about back in the early 2000s, the early part of the century about, hey, I'm here to talk about resilience, and the, the, the buzzword then, of course, was mitigation. Resilience was a way of uh, what Al Gore said was being lazy with the problem. Yes. And yes. so talk yes. a little bit about that experience and how, how, of course, here we are 23 years later, how things have changed.
2: Well, I, I think a lot of people thought that when you talked about resilience, meaning sort of adapting to what the problem is, that they thought that that meant you were giving up, mm-hmm. or even if you didn't mean giving up, it, 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 it would signal to other people that hey, we could, we've got this; we don't have to reduce carbon pollution. Uh, and of course, we have to uh, reduce carbon pollution. There's no there's no way around anything if we don't do that. Um, the, the the problem though was that. Um, this this heat that's in the atmosphere and in the oceans um and and the carbon pollution in the atmosphere it all stays around for a really long time so we could shut off the lights today all over the world and we would still have up to a hundred years 50 to 100 years of heating uh, which means 50 to 100 years of melting snow and floods and droughts and and all the rest and so we need a plan for these next 50 to 100 years, um, we're not shutting off the lights anytime soon anyway. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to continue. And the, the way that we buy time so that our pollution reduction methods have time to work, the way that we buy time is to adapt to the impacts that we are not going to avoid. Well, and and I and I'll just say that a lot of you know most people now I think are very open to that. When I was in the Obama administration, as you mentioned, we had a whole program that for the first time opened up to to help uh, local governments and states adapt to climate change.
0: And I'd like to think that um, things like the infrastructure investment and jobs act of 2021 and the inflation reduction act of 2022, maybe. Maybe parts of that plan, or expressions of that plan
2: oh oh yes, both of those uh, legislative initiatives are sending creating and sending billions of dollars to local governments and states um, to be more resilient and and it, it it might look it might you know it might appear in rather boring ways, but mm-hmm. if you see new roads going in or a new bridge being built. Um, by by money that's being used in these programs, um, first of all, uh, a lot of that money is being especially directed to areas that are more disadvantaged, that have more vulnerability to disasters that we've discussed. And second of all, all of those programs require standards for, um, for a future in which there's more drought or higher tides or more flood, uh, or more rain and so uh it's it's actually one and for our grid for our electric grid right. which is uh in peril in so many ways and every time you know there's a, a heavy storm here in new orleans or whatever the lights go out uh you know there could be a day or two people don't have power and that really affects everyone but it affects poor people uh the most right and um and so, in, in, all of those issues, all of those issues, are are being addressed by the funding in these legislative initiatives. They're not enough for everything, but they're a huge down payment, and it's it's really good to see.
0: Well, that's that's really encouraging. And without getting too political, let's hope those programs uh, remain in place for another four or five years, right, Rob?
2: Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll say, I mean, you know, your listeners might be surprised that. Um, that most of that money is going to counties, or in my case parishes, um, that, uh, that, are, uh, that, that are not necessarily democratic strongholds, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that everybody is benefiting from this uh, because every place, as I've said before, has these vulnerabilities.
0: That, that's a great point. And speaking of that, you had some vulnerabilities last night with some storms that came through. That is a huge storm that's going through the Midwest and the East right now.
2: Oh my gosh, we closed my school uh, oh, because of that. Wow. And, but I'll, I'll tell you what, we, had, uh, we have really excellent warning uh, mechanisms and communication systems on cell phones and everything else uh, with this city. And it's, it's because of programs that were started after Hurricane Katrina. We're, we're on the we're on the front end of, of the technology on that. I'm happy to say. Here. Yes, that
0: well. that's good to hear. Um, um, I
1: think we could talk to you all day, well, well, <laughs> but we do need to wrap up and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. I heard you describe the choice of for individuals to get involved in climate activities as an awakening. And I think your book and books like this speak to igniting these climate warriors. And we do appreciate it. We appreciate your work. And the book is Octopus in the Parking Garage. We're talking to Rob Vertick, And Rob, where can people go to find out more about you and your writings?
2: They can go to my website, which is robferchick, all one word, um, com.
0: Perfect. Rob, thanks so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth.
2: Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to turn our attention to old-growth forests and uh, some plans for protecting them. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, the weekly talk show about our our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak.
1: And I'm Claire Wiley.
0: And joining us for the second part of the show is Garrett Rose. He's with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and he's here to talk about a recent announcement uh, that the Department of Agriculture is proposing a nationwide plan focused on protecting federal old-growth forests here to give us some details on that Garrett thank you for joining us this morning on this green earth thank you for having me it's great to be here Ah, perfect Um, my first question this is really interesting plan we'll get into the the details of the plan but I did not know that the Department of Agriculture kind of oversees or has a hand in the national forest system can you explain the connection there oh did we lose
1: Yeah, I think we're experiencing a few technical difficulties. We are going to check in with that. And how about you fill us in more on the news that you had started, Chris?
0: All right. While we try to get Garrett back, I had been talking about a little piece in the New York Times this morning that uh, basically said that according to the European Union, 2023 was the warmest year on record, but not just the warmest year, it kind of smashed previous records. Uh, averaged across last year, temperatures worldwide were 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit higher than they were in the second half of the 19th century. Um, that is warmer by a sizable margin than 2016, which was the previous hottest year. And pretty much sure the last right. 10 years, have been basically the 10 warmest years on record. Now, to climate scientists, it comes as no surprise that unabated emissions of greenhouse gases cause global warming to reach new highs. What researchers are still trying to understand is whether 2023 foretells many more years in which heat records are not merely broken, but, but broken by a wide margin. Um, are we back?
1: We're back. <laughs> having a all few we're right. just having a few technical difficulties all today it happens
0: all right we're back with Garrett Rose he is with the National Resources Defense Council and he's he's here to talk about a, a plan announced I believe last week or so uh, which focuses on protecting federal old growth forests so Garrett are you there I am here can you hear me oh, yeah. well, yes we hear you great thank you for joining us. Um, I, my, my first question was, the, I did not know that the Department of Agriculture may play a hand with respect to protecting the national forest system. Can you explain the connection between them?
3: Sure. Yeah, like I, I was saying, it's a little odd. Uh, it's mostly a historical quirk. Mm-hmm. Back in the late 1800s, as federal lands were getting sort of managed and their management structure was being set up, forests were allocated to the department of agriculture at the time other federal lands were allocated to the department of the interior Mm. um it's it's been that way since then i know there were some efforts in like the 1930s to try to consolidate all federal lands under one agency that didn't go anywhere and it's been that way since
0: yeah okay so so Let's get a definition of what an old-growth forest is. What, what, do, what do you have to be to be considered an old-growth forest?
3: Sure. So it, there are a number of ways to think about it scientifically. For me, in the West, that means trees generally over 150 years old, mm. and in the East, trees generally over 120. And just to help you guys visualize it and your listeners visualize it, that's generally a tree you can't get your arms around.
0: Hmm. Okay. So that's a tree that's probably also uh, or a forest area that's never been logged. Uh, so this is the still the kind of the original forest setting, perhaps. In a lot of cases, in a lot of the United
3: States, our original old growth is gone. Yeah. Uh, you have some you have some old growth remaining. You have some old growth that you know started in let's say 1850 and would now be over 150 years old in the West. Yeah, that in some areas but like i said most of the old growth in the united states is gone now what little remains is left on the federal lands
0: ah okay uh, is there old growth say back east in the northeast core in new england or maybe in the southeast or is most most old growth out here west in the west most is in the
3: west there's very little left in the east unfortunately i, I actually live in maryland so we, we unfortunately do not have very much old growth left. And no. there isn't a lot generally, but what little remains is on federal lands and much of it is found in the West.
0: Okay. That's, it's interesting because I would, if anything, I thought maybe some portions of the Adirondacks at least might be considered old growth or have old growth expressions, of them. But, but maybe, well, they're, they're, not, all... they're not on federal land maybe. No, they're not on the Adirondacks, I believe, are, are
3: state-protected right. lands. If you were looking for old growth, they'd be in places like the Adirondacks, in places that weren't initially targeted in the early years for, uh, like, difficult-to-reach places in the east, up on mountains, in the Appalachians, Right. in uh, places that's where you'd find it, in the east coast, okay. or in the east, east and midwest.
1: And we were just talking with Rob Vertick, who had mentioned, he's an author and just wrote a book about climate resilience, and he had talked about old growth and how why it was so important to mitigate wildfires, to have these trees. But these trees, while they fight for their existence, they're also fighting for ours. So can you tell us the importance to some of these older trees? It
3: comes down to climate change, I and mean, they're really important for fighting climate change. That's the that's the law, part of it. And the core of that is photosynthesis. And we've all learned about photosynthesis in school. Trees take up carbon and let out oxygen that we breathe. In the process of taking up carbon, they'll store that carbon. I mean, it's what they do fundamentally. They take it out of the atmosphere. They store it in their trunks and their branches and their leaves. Um, They can do that for decades and centuries. They'll just hold on to that carbon. And old trees... Store tremendous amounts of carbon and continue to pull it out of the atmosphere at really impressive rates. So if we want the most climate bang for our buck, uh, we need to be focusing on protecting these big old trees. Mm. And the, you know, I focused on climate, I focused on carbon. There are a range of other benefits these trees provide, biodiversity benefits, right. watershed health benefits, recreational benefits, the list goes on.
1: And, yeah, erosion and flooding, and you talk about the list going on. Can you speak to that so our listeners can kind of better understand how they do affect us in such a tremendous way and how they protect us from so many natural disasters?
3: For sure. I'll pick up on what you said about erosion and flooding. I mean, one example of the essential services that older forests provide are in ensuring watershed integrity. And by that, I mean things like strengthening stream banks, Mm -hmm. regulating temperature in the streams through the canopy cover that they provide, um, regulating stream flow. So just to give an extreme example, if you have a clear cut that has a stream flowing through it and you have a lot of rainfall above that clear cut, it's going to come rushing through those stream beds. But if you have a forest there, particularly an older forest that has a well-developed root system and a lot of liquidy debris on the ground and in the streams, the flow of water will be more regulated through that area. And so these forests provide those kinds of structural benefits in the watershed context that really help ensure watershed health. And incidentally, in the process, they also provide a lot of important habitat for fish and other aquatic creatures. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, the, not not for nothing, there is a, a spiritual element to it and a cultural element to old-growth forests, too.
3: Yeah, they're really important for, I mean, they they provide a, a range of services outside of the kind of ecological services we've been talking to, uh, talking about. And I know in my discussion with uh, with with a lot of advocates, the thing that people touch on is kind of the, the feeling of being in a forest, that mm-hmm. connection to the forest that they, they emphasize. There's absolutely a deep spiritual element there as well.
1: And we talk about the collaboration of, well, scientists and indigenous and tribal nations, and obviously these hold a great deal of reverence for, for tribal nations as well.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's as the agency is moving forward with this process and as the administration is charting out how to protect old growth, it's absolutely essential that um, they and, and we engage with tribal nations as the first stewards of the land to understand how best to protect these these essential parts of our ecosystem.
0: We're speaking with Garrett Rose. He's with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we're talking about uh, the Department of Agriculture's proposing a, a nationwide plan which would focus on the protection of federal old-growth forests. So let's dig into what some of the elements are of this plan. What are, what, are, what is part of this proposal? So at core, the
3: administration is proposing to better protect old-growth forests from logging on federal land. That's sort of, in my mind, that's the beating heart of this proposal. Hmm. Um, I'm pretty excited about this is a pretty big deal and as we talked about we need protections for old growth on federal forests and it's a really unique opportunity but it's going to take a lot to get this across the finish line as the historic achievement it needs to be. We're going to be focusing on that in the coming months. This is the start of a process um, over the next year that the administration and the agency will be pursuing as they aim at better protections for old growth.
0: And so the protections would you know, allude to like preventing any logging from it. Would it prevent other uses within them?
3: Our goals are: we want them to stop sending old growth to the mill. Yeah. Uh, and they they got to manage the big trees and mature forests to regrow a lot of the old growth that we lost. And we want them to do it in a way that'll change, will forever change the way federal agencies treat these we're focused on 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 keeping these trees in the forest that's and we think the agency and the administration should be focused on doing what they can to keep these big old trees in
0: the forest all right so let's talk about who supports it and who opposes it first who who generally supports this plan
3: i think a lot of the i think the ngo community supports it i mm-hmm. think the public is really interested in in growth protections. Um, you know, last year when in the lead-up as sort of we were advocating for change, w- there was a federal comment process last year and over half a million members of the public weighed in in favor of stronger protections for mature and old growth forests and trees. So there's a lot of interest among the public among uh, the NGO community. Um, you know, opposed to that, I, I get the sense that the, the, the timber industry is probably not super happy about
0: this. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um, I, I mean, is there a lot of logging that goes on in old growth forests these days? I mean, I, I, I'm so, having trouble I, getting my head around that.
3: Yeah, the the timber industry, the American timber industry, doesn't really rely on Big old trees on federal forests anymore. Right. Something like 4% of America's timber comes from federal lands. And we've already talked about the climate benefits of keeping these trees in the forest. And, you know, if we're going to lead, if the, if the United States is going to lead the way in forest conservation internationally, we got to start at home by saving our most climate critical
0: trees and forests. Uh, okay. We shouldn't be in the mill anymore. Um, uh, so, the, the plan is being proposed, it, how does it get implemented? It, you said it went through a public comment period. Is it, is it on its way to being implemented?
3: The public comment, the first public comment period started uh, a week or two ago, um, and that'll run until the very beginning of February. Right now, the agency is basically asking the public, as we're developing this proposal, what should we be thinking about? What should we be looking at? It's called a, it's called a scoping period. They're asking about the scope of the proposal. Um, you know, following that, according to the, the, the timeline they laid out, in late spring, they'll put out a more in-depth analysis of, of the effects of the, a, of a, well, let me back up. They'll lay out different versions of the proposal what are called alternatives, mm. and they'll provide sort of an analysis of how those different versions would affect the environment. Um, and there will be another common opportunity at that point. Uh, so in the late, late spring, probably through mid-summer, there will be a common opportunity. Mm. Following that, the agency will go back and come up with the final version. Um, and later this year, late, later the, I, I would guess in the wintertime, we would see the final version of the proposal released uh, to the
0: public does it have to go through Congress uh, the House or the Senate or is this just more of an administrative process
3: this is administrative it doesn't go through Congress this is the executive branch using or the Department of Agriculture using its congressionally delegated authorities Mm. to uh, to advance a proposal to advance a policy that will protect, hopefully protect old growth trees.
0: And just another minute or two, uh, if it is implemented through uh, administrative procedures, if we have, let's say, a change in our administration in 2024, this could all be scrapped or modified or just sent away, correct?
2: I think there's a risk
3: that if if there is a change that we could see modifications for this.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. I hope this ends up in a place where uh, my, my hope, perhaps wishful thinking on my part, is that this ends up in a place where folks will realize all the good it does and leave it in place. But if this ends up in the kind of place we want it to end up, where they're really protecting old growth and not sending it to the mill and they're managing... old trees and mature forest to regrow the old growth and we're gonna we're gonna make sure we're gonna do what we can to make sure it stays in place
0: right well uh we gotta wrap up where can people go to learn more about this proposed plan and and the nrdc in general
1: and perhaps get involved themselves in helping to push this forward as an individual voice
3: yeah I think there are a couple things. As I said, there's a comment period going on right now. I think it's really important that the agency hear from the public. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, it's gonna take a lot of work to get this to the place it needs to be, to make it the historic achievement it needs to be. Um, we're gonna be, NRDC is gonna be really engaged in that. You can find out more information at nrdc.org and just plug my name into the search bar. Uh, and the coalition of NGOs that we're part of um, is is also engaged on this. And we have a website, climate-forests.org, mm. and you can find out more information there.
1: That has a lot of rich information about what we just talked about, about the benefits of old-growth forests and uh, gives you more information about the impacts that it can have if it goes away.
0: Garrett Rose, he's with the National Resources Defense Council. Thank you again for joining us this morning on this green earth. Thank you for having me. This has been great. All right. Um, do we have any under it? We are out. Well, surprise. <laughs> That's fine because i Well, you I've had got... a
1: disjointed, a little bit disjointed news because yes. we went to it and then we left and then we went back. So maybe uh, give us I, another little recap, Chris. I'm,
0: I'm not. I'm not talking about that anymore.
1: Okay. <laughs> You tell, okay, what would you like to speak to? I want to
0: talk about um, something that's a little closer, that's more local in nature, and that's that uh, January is Radon Awareness Month around the country. But specifically here in Summit County, we do have radon. We have soils that have radon in them. Radon is just a naturally occurring mineral Mm -hmm. that gives off a form of radioactivity. And so we need to be aware of it, particularly um, in our homes, because that radon gas can get seep into our homes and our, say, low-lying areas of our homes, basements, et cetera. cetera. Um, So today, uh, this month is Radon Awareness Month, and the Summit County Department of Health has an interesting program where you can pick up a radon test kit from them for $10, uh, g- uh, collect a sample of uh, air or so from your home, follow the directions, um, send it back to the Department of Health or send it send the sample in to a lab, they'll give you all the information, and then you get the results back. And they get the results back too. So, so uh, kind
1: of citizen science.
0: Yeah, and, and a way to find out, hey, do I have radon in my crawl spaces or in my basement, or uh, areas that might be vulnerable to it. So to do that, you can you go to uh, SummitCountyHealth.org, click on the Environmental Health uh, tab along their left side, uh, and then inside that, click on Radon Program. And in there, there's information about how to get a test kit, etc. There's also a map they're developing or putting together that shows the results. Uh, of homes tested in in the Summit County area so you can see City. if you're in the hot so you can kind of get a sense of, of what other homes in your if other homes mm-hmm. in your area neighborhood have been tested and what the results are it's not addresses or anything It's not to that level of granularity but in general you can see what some of the results are um, and so that's all on the Summit County uh, Health website so again it's ten bucks they get a, a kit from them, contact them, pick it up, get your analysis, send it off to a certified lab, get the results. So,
1: there interesting. You go. We will try to report back on that to see where our highest radon well, where reports are, some, are coming it's, back it's, it's, in our community.
0: Yes, we'll maybe get them on to talk more about
1: yeah. that.